Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on insulin analogues following the recent webinar on the same topic and, and the, both the webinar and the podcast are sponsored by Novo Nordisk. My name's Jan Orford and I'll be your host today. I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce our very experienced guests for today, Kiralee Chambers and Jane Lehman. Kiralee graduated from the University of Technology in 1993 with a Bachelor of Pharmacy. In 1999, she completed an advanced diploma course in nutritional pharmacy and in 2005 completed a graduate certificate in diabetes education from Curtin University. Kiralee joined the team at Diabetes South Australia as a diabetes educator in July 2008 and worked with an extensive allied health team before leaving to set up private practice in the Adelaide Hills in 2012. In January 2009, she became the first credentialed diabetes educator and accredited pharmacist in Australia. Kiralee's passion is insulin pump therapy, insulin initiation and titration, and mental health and chronic health conditions. It's because of this passion and awareness around the use of language and diabetes that she won the Jan Baldwin National Credential Diabetes Educator of the Year in 2016. Kiralee was also awarded the UTS Innovation Pharmacist of the Year Award in 2018. Jane Lehman draws on her 34 years of working with people with diabetes to present practical and relatable presentations. Multi-skilled as an author, blogger, clinician, educator, innovator, social media commentator and mentor and researcher, Jane has a broad base of experience. Her pioneering work with people with diabetes and intellectual disability has created new services, strategies, resources and education programs for people with intellectual disability and their support workers. Jane was the 2017 CDE of the Year in South Australia and was awarded Honorary Life Membership of the Australian Diabetes Educators Association in 2018 for her outstanding and innovative contribution in the diabetes and disability sectors. She and Kiralee host the P2 Chat podcast on all things to in all things diabetes. Today we're going to be discussing insulin analogues and the learning objectives for this podcast will be to firstly describe the features of an insulin analogue, secondly to identify what influences the type of insulin analogue chosen, and thirdly, to identify how COVID-19 can impact people with diabetes. So hello to you both, Kiralee and Jane, and I uh, hope you are both well today. Oh, I think we are. Hi, Jane. <laughs> thank you, Jane. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> good, thank you. So we might get started on our questions. I know you guys have already had a bit of a session of it, so I'll try and keep this as brief as we can. So, Kiralee, we might start with you, and I'd like to begin by asking you to perhaps explain what an insulin analogue is and what types of insulin analogues exist, please. So, an insulin analogue is an altered form of naturally occurring insulin where what they do is they change the amino acid sequence, and what this does is it allows the body to still recognise it, but it changes the insulin so that it can become either an ultra-short-acting, a fast-acting, or it delays it to allow it to be slowly released from the body. And 
there are lots of different insulin analogues available on the market now, much better than what they were years ago. So to give you some examples, there's ultra short acting. There's a new one available called BASP. There's also a PIDRA, which is available. Then we've got our rapid acting, and those should be injected in theory about 20 minutes before a meal, and they help um, offset the um, high glucose levels that you get straight after a meal. They would be the Humalogs and the Novo Rapids. And then we have our long acting, or what is sometimes known as the basal um, insulins. They're things like glargine and levomere and also the Tejeos that are available. Then we get our intermediate insulins, and they're things like protophane. And as we've discussed um, already on the webinar, they will offset things like corticosteroid um, influences uh, of the blood glucose levels that can occur later in the day. And also we sometimes see them still used in children um, for a mid-afternoon snack. We also then get our pre-mixed insulins, things like Humalog, MX, 25 and Humalog MX50 and also Novamix 30. And then we have a new uh, insulin on the market which is known as a co-formulation which is the Rizodex. We also then have one which sits a little bit on its own island still I think and I see it more used than I would have assumed which is your Act Rapid. And Act Rapid used to be used a lot for meals but I don't think it should be used a lot anymore, in my opinion, for meal times because it doesn't get picked up by the body within about 15 minutes. And I think it has a longer acting um, than the 15 minute for meal time use. Thank you for that. I, I must say, I realise I'm glad I'm out of this. There's too many to remember since I got tired. But thank you for that. And I wonder if you could tell us what some of the reasons are to select different insulin analogues. And in your clinical experience, how would you determine what type of insulin is best for the individual? Look, I think the most important reason for choosing a different type of insulin certainly is still what we call person-centred care. I mean, there are lots of things that influence blood glucose levels and, of course, that will then influence what chooses what insulin um, you would select. And certainly, again, what we've talked about before is even what type of pen a person would um, choose when they're prescribing. But certainly the co-formulation now with the very much longer acting um, Degladec insulin would be a good reason for choosing uh, one insulin over another because that seems to give much more stability and it's much longer acting. But whether a person uses a basal bolus uh, regime uh, for lifestyle choices or whether they use a pre-mixed insulin, something like your Novo mix or your other mixes that are available is very much consistent with what the person, whether the person wants to use the um, regime that allows them for a lifestyle choice is very much about a conversation that a credential diabetes educator would have with the person. And that's very much, again, about the uh, person-centred care and also what the physicians got 
available to them because again it may be about whether or not the person's got very severe arthritis and that they can only use a select pen or whether they're a grain nomad um, and they live in a caravan and they can only have the cartridges available and they can't use the boxes that they would normally fill up. Thank you for that Kiralee. Um can you tell, you mentioned uh, co-formulations and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the difference between that and a mixed insulin, please. Um, I think the co-formulation is the way that Novo Nordic have developed their combination of the Deliadec and the short-acting insulin combined. The way that they describe it's how the long-acting insulin comes out of the formulation. So the really interesting thing about the Rhizodec is that you can change when the injection is um, used. So to give a good example is if a person wants to inject at night time, um, with their main meal. So the most important thing about Rhizodeg is that you inject it with the most um, carbohydrate-containing meal of the day. It can be used up to twice a day with the two con uh, carbohydrate-containing meals. But obviously, if the person is to start with one carbohydrate-containing meal and they choose dinner, for example, or tea, but then, so they do that on Sunday night, as an example, but then they decide they're going to go out for breakfast with their family the next day. The co-formulation allows them to change the time of the day that they're eating the meal, as long as that meal is separated by six hours. So the co-formulation allows for a stability once it reaches steady state. Um, so that takes um, sometimes up to a week for it to hit steady state when there's dosing adjustments occurring. But once that steady state has occurred, then they can swap the timing of the meal that they're eating it with. So they can have it for dinner or tea on the Sunday night, and then they can have it for breakfast on the next day if they choose to have it with their main carbohydrate-containing meal with not... Um, an increased fear of having a hypo because they've swapped the timing of the main meal in theory. And I think the other thing, Jan, is that the co-formulation means that each insulin is within that formulation, is working as it should. So the short-acting yeah. and the long-acting component, as opposed to it being pre-mixed, which we're used to talking about, like with Novomix or the Humalog, where the two insulins are combined together in the one formulation. So it maintains the action much more predictably. Right. I get you. Thank you for that. I think you've probably already answered this one a bit pretty much, Kiralee, but I'll just ask you, perhaps, is there anything you wanted to add in terms of what would a co-formulation do in terms of benefit for a patient or a client? So again, I think it's about the, we know that people with diabetes, when they're going on to insulin, the one fear that they have more than any other and the one fear that their families have and the one fear that their caregivers have is hypoglycemia. And we know that people will, sometimes 
ironically, if HbA1Cs go up or, or time in range goes up when people go on to insulin, particularly overnight, because people will eat, you adjust their insulin doses, and if, we all see this, of course, we adjust people's insulin doses and suddenly their HbA1Cs and their time in range goes up because people eat. They'll eat to stop hypos, even when they're not really hypoing. So the stability of a co-formulation means that they're, in theory, less likely to have a hypo because the long-acting component of the um, insulin is less likely to cause that um, dipping overnight. Um, and so even if they're giving it with their main meal, if that main meal is at night time. So the stability of that whole formulation and that long-acting insulin, the Degludec insulin, allows people to have the confidence to mean that they're less likely to have a hypoglycemia. So the advantage, if you like, for a person with diabetes is that they can have the confidence it's less likely in theory to cause hypoglycemia, particularly overnight, and that's what the studies showed. Thank you very much for that, Kiralee. Jane, I'd like to move on to you and, and ask you, what are some of the ways that the COVID-19 epidemic has impacted on people with diabetes? Yes, the, um, the reason is that there have been lots of reports of people with diabetes being more likely to uh, succumb to the uh, coronavirus to, to catch it. Um, however, what we have found is that it's the fact that they have other comorbid uh, conditions uh, and that it's those things that if a person gets the coronavirus, if they have diabetes, then they may well be more likely to experience those other um, more serious sides of having the virus respiratory wise. And it also has been an issue because the coronavirus has increased blood glucose levels because it's creating a lot of insulin resistance in a person. And it also increases the risk of, for people with type 1 diabetes, of diabetic ketoacidosis and other, uh, other conditions that can complicate the whole process of uh, treatment and recovery. So lots of uh, people also have the impact has been a lot of uh, problems with mental health and feeling fearful and you've got media constantly talking about uh, people with diabetes being um, affected more. And so people have been scared anyway, but if you add in having a condition that's been talked about a lot, and that, you know, they're, they're going to have more problems and naturally that's going to affect people quite considerably. Yes, I can only imagine we're scared enough, the rest of us in the population. And just, I guess, following on slightly from that, um, are people with diabetes at any greater risk of de developing complications if they um, contact the coronavirus and people without diabetes? So... What we have been seeing is that they're not more likely to contract it as such. However, they're likely to be sicker. And so hence why there's been a lot of talk around the number of people with diabetes who have ended up in hospital in intensive care. And uh, 
that has impacted on people. I think there was a lot of self-isolation very early with people uh, with diabetes, especially older people who had maybe other conditions as well. But a lot of people with type 1 diabetes self-isolated faster as well. And that's a good thing because if you're limiting your exposure to uh, potentially people with the uh, condition, then less likely to pick it up. Prevention is always better than cure. I think the other thing is that if your blood glucose levels are rising and you've got increased insulin resistance, it kind of makes sense that there's going to be uh, an increased potential for sepsis and other issues with lungs and um, the respiratory side of things. So we, we also have a lot of people with type 2 diabetes who are older and already have other conditions like asthma or um, COPD or emphysema. And so you've got a, a high risk group because of age and other issues, as well as the body need to fight the virus. And we know that high glucose levels make that harder. Uh, so it does make sense as to why that is. Now, it's all very well to make sense, but if you're hearing that or reading it in every article, in every news thing, then we as health professionals have to start getting a lot better at equipping people to manage that fear, but also to know what to do when they do get uh, become unwell generally. So I think it has definitely given a really big boost around the need for sick day management and that's something that credential diabetes educators do really really well so if we could just get them to send more people uh, than the current 17 percent of people that are coming to see a cde we would be able to prepare people a lot better for sick days of which coronavirus could be one of those well, that segues very nicely, and I guess to ask you, does diabetes management, is it, are you seeing a, a significant change if someone is sick with coronavirus or have you had experience in that area? Uh, there's, it's more probably what I'm reading uh, as to the, the response, I would have to say. Uh, and we also have an issue with some of the oral medications that people are on. So there's an issue certainly around the need for people to have their insulin and tablet dosing increased faster because of the insulin resistance. There's also been the issue with the SGLT2 medications and they have this incidence of ketoacidosis in people with type 2 diabetes and who are euglycemic. So their glucose levels can be tickety-boo, but they end up developing uh, quite serious ketoacidosis, uh, especially if they're sick or unwell or dehydrated. And so, you know, if people, as soon as someone has a viral illness, but especially with coronavirus, you would stop the SGLT2s. And that's why um, the other one to be wary of would be metformin because of its risk of lactic acidosis. So uh, those two medications would be put on hold. That then is likely to require a need for insulin. 
in order to perhaps give a boost to what is happening with the insulin resistance to keep it managed and in the best approach for minimising progression of symptoms to more serious scenarios with intensive care and uh, and hospitalisation. So I think it's also around uh, presenting early. As soon as someone's not feeling uh, well, make sure that they're getting the testing at the moment because everyone can be tested. You want the doctor's need to be able to know what that person has, if it is coronavirus or if it's uh, something else. I think the other thing that uh, has probably changed that I, I should have mentioned before would be the need for people to have their flu influenza um, vaccines at the moment so that they can uh, decrease or eliminate their, their risk of developing the flu as well as potentially coronavirus. Great, thank you for that. I can only imagine it'll workload must be interesting at the moment. Thank you both, uh, Kiralee and Jane, for that. I just had one uh, couple of final questions for both of you. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that you have a series of your own series of podcasts that you've been producing. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us more about that and how it all came about, please. We have a podcast called um, P2 Diabetes Chat. And how it came about, I, I just said one day to Kiralee, we should do a podcast. Now, we didn't know how to do a podcast. <laughs> we learned very quickly, Jan. So we went about finding out how to do a podcast and we just bought a microphone and uh, started chatting. And I guess... Um, we felt there was a need to start to bring people evidence-based information in a way that was easy to understand. And we were, um, I guess, in a position where people recognised our names as well. Because Kiralee's a, um, are you again, pharmacist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a nurse and uh, we have quite a big reach with uh, the people who might want to listen in primary care. And primary care is the place where we really need to be increasing awareness around how people can support people with diabetes to have a positive experience and interaction with the health services instead of what could only be described as traumatic at times. And uh, the therapeutic inertia, I have to say, is what has triggered me to do a lot of work. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. That's been our focus, is that we want to get people actively helping people with diabetes. Interestingly enough, a lot of people with diabetes also listen to our podcast. And so we've tried, we present it in an easy to understand easy listen it's 30 minutes so that if someone's exercising or uh, commuting to work on a, a train in non-COVID-19 times <laughs> uh, you know it, it's appealing um yeah we've had some really good feedback i think people like the fact that it's a bit funny as well apparently kiralee and i are funny together <laughs> and oh, good <laughs> with us, not at us. Not at us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good to hear. Thank you, guys.
Um, I, thank you once again for your time. I know it's been a long session for you today, but it's also been good to catch up, even if I didn't have my uh, camera on for you. So thank you also, <laughs> thank you also to Novo Nordisk, and thank you to the listeners for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And just a reminder to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADEA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, goodbye and thank you.